if you want a title, Sin, Salvation, Struggle, Savior. And here's, here's my uh, caveat in the beginning before Crystal reads. Uh, most Sundays, I, f- I want to be a little bit like a, a, a choo-choo train, a, you know, locomotive. You're, you're heading in one direction. I know that direction, all of that. This morning, it feels in my heart a little more like fireworks. We're not like A, B, C, D, okay? You guys get where I'm, and, and I'm hoping that it's like in the sky a little bit more than those uh, 4th of July videos that I've been watching this week of all the fireworks that blow up on the ground and it's chaos. That's my hope is like, oh, here's, because we're covering the day of the Lord, and it's all over scripture. So, we're talking about sin, we're talking about salvation, we're talking about struggle, and the Savior, who is, spoiler alert, Jesus. So, with that, Crystal, you can come on up. She's going to be reading Zephaniah chapter number 2, verses 1 through 3, and then she's going to pray for us, and we'll see what God has. Here you go. Thank you. Hi. Okay. Zephaniah chapter 2. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands, Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So, Lord, here we are. Um, Thank you that you've given us this day to be alive and to breathe and to um, gather together as a church. We, right here and right now, um, make our hearts ready for you. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come. Um, We would like to hear from you, and we would like to be obedient to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this week, the elders were meeting at Wild Iris doing what elders do, and that is uh, talking and talking some more. And one of the things that came up in our conversation was just how much personal and corporate pain is felt within our church. And I, and I think that's true of just about any church where there is people, there is pain, and there's difficulty. But I think there's a uniqueness within our church that's been formed in the last three years of the amount of grief that has been felt by us, again, corporately and individually. A lot of you have experienced a lot of difficulty in the last three, four years. And we come together and there's this uh, collective burden that is carried and felt and shared. And I feel like as a pastor, really, really proud in that I've seen people carry that well. Carry that together. Kind of live in that mystery where we are never promised answers to our questions but we're given a presence with us and for us. And that's something that week to week I'm, I'm fairly aware of, again, being one of the, the pastors that has a front row seat to that reality. And, and, and so the darkness that is in this world is felt within our church. And the question that comes is, what's going to happen with it all? What's God going to do? about it. 
And Zephaniah answers that question, or at least gives a direction for it. All throughout the, the prophets, both minor and major, they give us a glimpse of God's perspective, God's heart, God's vision within it all. Again, in what the prophets, and this title could be the title for any one of the prophets, they all talk about sin, they all talk about salvation, they all talk about struggle, and they all, because to quote Sally Lloyd-Jones, every story whispers his name, they all point to the hope of a savior. Every prophet does that. Now, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, we are trying to help within the teaching of these somewhat obscure minor prophets. And Anthony kind of introduced us by giving the theme of a boy band for all the minor prophets. He's comparing them to boy band members. And I attempted, if you were here two weeks ago, to try and get us back on the straight and narrow and go Avengers. And I failed because he got back in the pulpit yesterday and did the same thing and brought us back to boy band territory. And so I just figure if you can't beat them, join them. So Zephaniah... He's the older brother type of the band, yeah? There's, there's a test you can take online, and I kind of took it imagining my, you know, Zephaniah taking this test, and I guess there's an older brother type of, of the boy band. And, and then I was thinking, you know what, it, 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 if and when the day comes that I die, just put on my gravestone, at least he tried, all right? <laughs> I tried. Zephaniah... <laughs> The older brother type. His message in ministry was in the final days of Josiah the king. If you go, who? You can refer back to 2 Kings uh, verse, or chapter 22 and 23 that, that gives a glimpse into the life and happenings of King Josiah. He was one of the final kings in Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, who brought reform, which is to be expected with a king who becomes a king at eight years old. Josiah became king as eight, and I imagine any eight-year-old that becomes king will bring some change to a land. I just imagine my own kids, what kind of... It's candy for breakfast, everybody! That's not exactly how it went, but that's, again, a little glimpse into my mind. And so this little three-chapter book has, has a big message, and that is, you could see it in Crystal's reading, Seek the Lord before this day, the day of the Lord, falls. And this prophet goes through his poetry to show how sin destroys and it distorts life, how salvation awaits any and all who would follow after Yahweh God. In chapters 1 to chapters 2, verse 3, the promise is this, judgment is coming. And if you're to ask why is judgment coming, uh, the shortest, simplest answer to that is sin. It's because of sin and its effects. Now, I realize that today in 2022, that word is not a very popular word. It's fallen out of favor, and I think also is largely misunderstood. It's, it's a simple word in the Bible. It's only three letters in our English language, but it has such a wide-reaching reality and connotations to it all. We need to understand the scope and the categories of sin and evil at work in the world. Often we shrink down sin to just simply like kind of the bad thing you do that the nun, you know, for those of you that went to Catholic school, you know, slaps your hand on the wrist or slaps your, your, your hand with the ruler and says you shouldn't do that. Sin is just shrunken down to bad things I shouldn't do. Where the Bible's categories are so much broader and more expansive. Sin is seen as an evil force 
that's at work in the world. Sin is seen within structures that happen in society. And sin is seen in a personal, individual effect. Those three broad categories kind of collide together to this one word that we have is sin. The early church father, Augustine, said sin isn't a substance, it's a corruption. And what we see from the beginning of the Bible is that sin attaches to God's good creation and brings distortion and death to everything it touches. Sin at its core is a dehumanizing force at work in the world. It's alive in our hearts, in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, in one Anglican prayer, by things that we do, by the things that we left, leave undone. And in chapter 1, we see that the prophet calls people to account for many different aspects of life and sin in their world. They bow down to other gods. They worship creation. Uh, he calls out Milcom, which if you want to see a little picture of a cute little statue that has an evil reality behind it, an Ammonite god, Milcom. Not Malcolm, Milcom, the God. It is a turning from following after God. He calls them for not seeking after God, not inquiring of God. It's kind of the opposite of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 that says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. He's going to make your path straight. It's doing the exact opposite of that. It's trusting in yourself or other things in this world with all your heart. It's leaning on your own or other people's understanding, not God's. It's in all your ways acknowledging yourself or, again, these other false gods. And it leads to a, a pretty messed up path. Romans says that the wages of sin is death. And the promise of the prophets is that judgment is coming. And in Zephaniah and other prophets, they refer to again and again that day. We see in chapter 1, verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. You see this call again and again to a day that is coming. The great day of the Lord. And often when it's referred to, you get the opposite language of what Genesis 1 and 2 are, where God brings light and he creates out of love. You see a lot of the opposite. You see darkness. You see destruction. Rather than creation coming together in this beautiful tapestry and harmony that it is, it's, it's this unraveling at the seams that seems to take place. And a lot of the language that you get in the prophets is used in Exodus, which we'll get to in a little bit. But all along what the prophets call the children of Israel to, the children of Judah, and us today is rather than allowing that day to fall on us in judgment, we can, we can trust and follow after God that there is opportunity for repentance and faith Yet again, to turn, to trust, to seek, to follow. And the question is, as you read the scripture, well, are they going to do it? And you're like, at best, for a little bit. It's kind of like the Ninevites last week. Yes, for a little bit. Then Zephaniah takes a turn in chapters 2, verse 3, all the way to 3, verse 8, that judgment extends not only to Israel and Judah, but all of the earth. So, Again and again, this theme happens, the day of the Lord. So what is it? Well, I'm going to borrow a definition from Jason Derushi, who says the phrase, the day of Yahweh, which is the Lord, refer both to the ultimate time when Yahweh will punish and restore, recreate the whole world, 
and to the periodic penultimate days that clarify and anticipate it. What we've used the illustration before that's not original to me is that as the prophets prophesy about this day, it's as though they're looking into a set of mountains on the horizon. And as you can see different peaks, you don't necessarily know or you cannot discern how much distance is carried between them. So as they say that day, that day, that day, they're speaking about multiple moments that are to come throughout history that is not discernible in their time of how long, and I would say also in our time, of how much distance takes place between them all. So they speak about judgment coming, this day happening that speaks of one final day that we'll get to, and then also the different moments of judgment in Israel's history. Always, the roots and the themes of this day come from Exodus. That there will be judgment, there will be justice, and there will be rescue and renewal. Throughout Scripture, Exodus is the motif of that day. Motif means uh, a pattern. And whenever I hear the word motif, I just go simply to music. And the one who reminds me, or one of the greatest motif makers, in my opinion, John Williams. He's 90 years old, just is now retiring from composing for, uh, for movies. He's going to still keep doing his, his music. So this is for some of you uh, who are not millennials. Bum, 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 bum. What movie is it? Okay. So what's happening when that motif comes? What, what's happening, Jim? The end. the end. The shark draweth nigh. Right? He's written for Star Wars. And there's theme music for, it's the Imperial. That's the bad guys, right? Darth Vader. Um, and I can't think of it right off the top of my head because I have Jaws in it still. Bum, 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 Yeah, thank you. This is a very participatory sermon. I like it. See, it's fireworks, guys. It's happening. Exodus carries these notes all throughout Scripture. So when you see darkness, Exodus. When you, when you see this cataclysm within creation, the, the children of Israel would have gone, Exodus, again and again and again, that God's work for his people was salvation, in the Exodus, how did it happen, though? Through judgment, through justice, through his anger against a people that were oppressing others. Salvation comes through judgment. His people, then, in the Exodus are marked through a sacrifice, through the blood of the lamb that goes up on the doorpost. That's how God's people are preserved. God's mighty acts bring about redemption as God would not allow Pharaoh to continue to use and abuse and oppress his people. Because of Pharaoh's sin and its effects and force in the world, God did something about that in the Exodus. He delivered his people and then called his people again and again and again to remember that through a meal, through the Passover. To where, on an annual basis, they were to recall and tell the story of God's mighty acts of deliverance through judgment. That salvation comes through 
judgment, and sacrifice. And so that day of the Passover then becomes a marker of the day of the Lord that is to come. Again, whenever you hear about the day of the Lord, it is salvation through judgment. And again and again and again, the prophets, and we'll see Jesus, and then the writers of the New Testament and Revelation are using this very similar imagery of what God did in the Exodus to bring about salvation. The problem for Israel, though, is they went from being oppressed to becoming oppressors. They went from being saved and redeemed to ruling with a heavy hand and forgetting who God is and his work. Tim Mackey says God's judgment passed through Egypt to hold the nation accountable and passed over Israel to rescue them from death and slavery. God then instructed the people of Israel to observe Passover every year so they would remember his deliverance and defense of the afflicted. For Israel, the day of the Lord was something to celebrate until Israel began to resemble their former oppressors. And so in Israel and Judah, corruption had entered into the house of God and his people had become the oppressors. So the prophets begin speaking of this day promised in Amos here in Zephaniah. And again, what's interesting is if you look back to 2 Kings, one of the reforms of Josiah it has echoes of Ezra and Nehemiah that the book of the covenant is discovered, the Torah. They read it and they discover, oh, guess what we haven't been observing every year? Passover. Guess what we're supposed to do every year in following after Yahweh? Celebrate Passover. So that's one of the reforms in which Josiah brings to the people of God. Later on, though, Amos, Zephaniah, and other prophets say that this day is coming. Well, how does that day come? comes in the form of Babylon, it comes in the form of Assyria, and eventually it comes in the form of an empire that goes by the name of Rome, the Roman Empire, which is the backdrop then for when Jesus arrives. Jesus arrives into the story not when Israel is up on its high horse, not when Israel is is following after the law. Israel is still living out the effects of God's judgment on them through the oppression of Rome. And so Jesus enters into this story of creation, fall, and redemption and promises to be Savior. He he lives out Israel's story on repeat but without sin. So he's driven out into the wilderness. We see in Matthew chapter 3, 4. He's tempted by the serpent as Adam and Eve were in the garden, yet he's without sin. He he promises life and redemption. How? Well, John the Baptist cries out, behold what? The Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. To all of those first century hearers, they would have gone, oh, Exodus? The Lamb of God, which takes away the sins they would have thought Passover. And this is the ministry and the mantle that Jesus takes on, that he would deliver his people. Now, for us today, this story, at least because I'm a church kid, has become so familiar that, that it's easy for me, and I found myself even this week kind of just typing through the motions, going, okay, here's the story, here's the connections, okay. And, and it just kind of becomes rote, and, and it... I think this is part of just the the human construct that we can allow walls and familiarities to not let these truths penetrate within our hearts. 
And I think that we live within a world that, that clouds our vision from seeing this and allowing it to have an impact within us. But this is what Jesus takes on, and we need to allow it to affect our vision, our hearts, our minds, and our worldview as we relate to the world. Now, every one of us are built differently and encounter this story in a different way. There's a lot of personality profile types out there uh, to, you know, help you discover yourself. Myers-Briggs gives you, you know, one of 16. The Enneagram's one of nine. Strengths finders, like, there's 34 different strengths. I'm introducing a, a, a very simple one, uh, and it's yet to be named. It's the, um, uh, the wolf test. You're one of two, okay? And this came to me in the shower this morning, so you know it's going to be good. You are either, talk about oversimplification, you're either a navel gazer or a finger pointer, okay? You either are focused inward at your own situation and your own ideas and your own hurts and your own pains and, and you have an inward focus or you're more busy and angry pointing the finger at the world and everything that's wrong with everybody else. And so some of us, and, and you're like, oh, I do both. Congratulations, church bingo, you win today. Um, but many of us have this problem of, of seeing everything that's wrong with the world, right? And, and this sells a lot of dollars. And this is cable news. You, you take a, a, a position and a worldview, and then you point your finger at everybody that's not like you, and they're the problem. And then you get angry about it, and you vote about it, and you tweet about it, and it's everybody else's fault. That's the finger pointers, right? So if, you, if you're in this room and you're just really ticked off at the world, you're a finger pointer, okay? Others, it's like, that would be great if you could just get over your own hurdles and your own shame and your own issues that you carry. And, and kind of, again, that like little bit woe is me. So... Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Um, you go, where are you going with this all? Both in this room need to apply who Jesus is and what he does to our perspective and allow it to transform us. And the truth is, for those that point the finger, they need to look at their navel a little bit more. And for those that look at the navel, you need to look outside yourself a little bit more. And that's a, a, a little bit of it. But the way in which that happens is by seeing who Jesus is, what he has done, and allowing that to transform our default uh, operating with this world our default disposition with this world and allow Jesus to change us. As I was looking at, like, steeped in just the fact that God gets angry, God brings judgment, God brings justice this, this week, I, I found myself just going, oh my goodness. On one hand, like, Lord, come quickly because it's every week there's something. I, 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 you could create a position within every single church of just the person who writes a statement on whatever happened within their world that week and how the church is to address that. And, and the, again, the elders have talked about this week after week. What do you address? What don't you? A Supreme Court decision or something happened locally within the community or there's an assassination or a war going on. It's like every single week there's something new to address, and I found myself, at least the, the Heidelberg Catechism came again and again in my brain, and the first question is this, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, 
but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus. So if you find yourself stuck on yourself or you find yourself perpetually angry at the world, your only hope is Jesus. Your only hope is the fact that a Savior has come into the world to rescue us from sin. And what that helps us do is first look in the mirror and look out in the world and see that there's evil, period. And we can't because the Bible doesn't allow us to to gloss over that or sugarcoat it. And for some of us, we want to think, oh, well, it's all the uh, bad people over there. And others of us, we get stuck on ourselves and don't apply the Savior there. We need to recognize the problem that dwells within the human heart that affects all of the world. Joshua Ryan Butler has a really good book that we've quoted from multiple times, The Skeletons in God's Closet, and he talks about final judgment, and he says this. One of the problems with the ways we tend to talk about the power of hell, that is evil in the world, that we shift the blame for the cruelty that is ours in the world away from ourselves and towards the heart of God who is good. This is blaming God for all the problems in the world. Our problem is not that we are good and God is evil. The gospel flips this illusion on its head. God is good, and we are evil. Our healing begins with our repenting acknowledgement of this fact. Then we can fall into the arms of mercy that are waiting to receive us. That's what Crystal read in Zephaniah chapter 2. Where, again, you hear this refrain, gather together, yes, gather together, O shameless nation. When? Before. 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 Verse 3, seek the Lord. There's this call in the prophets to see our sin and, and not just wallow in it or deny it, but confess it in turn to the Savior. There's a story I read about G.K. Chesterton, who is a, a theologian, I believe in the 1900s. Josh Sloans, where are you? Help me out. I think some. Around there, 1890. He was old-timey, you know, monocles, mustaches with curls, that, that kind of time. <laughs> he was invited by a paper in the early 1900s to submit an essay in response to the question, what's wrong with the world? And he humorously, wisely responded with a simple four-word essay, dear sirs, I am. So we have to start with this acknowledgement. There is a problem in the world, and it starts with ourselves. Your guy, Alexander Solonitsyn, a Russian, he said this, The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. So again, this is scattered, but what I hope you see is is a few things. One, there is evil in the world, and the simplest word for it is sin. And sin is a big, complex system of evil that's at work, and it, it, it begins in the human heart from the garden, right? So it, it is an evil force in the world. It affects systems and structures, and it is held at the individual level. And when sin happens, it brings death and dehumanizing forces. The children of Israel had lived that out, had been delivered by it, and got in the cycle back into it, had become oppressors, and God promises judgment of sin. 
the sin is rampant, but salvation is promised. And there's this struggle that continues to remain. And the way in which God addresses evil, addresses sin, addresses death, is not simply by pointing the finger at everybody, but by himself remaining sinless and then taking on all of the evil, all of the sin, all of the problems of the world on himself and becoming that sacrifice on the cross. And in the life and ministry of Jesus, what he does is he promises a future day where there will be final and full judgment and salvation. And I hope that we can see that news as good news. I think where we often get confused or frustrated or miss it is that too often that news that Jesus has promised to return, to bring judgment fully and finally, is, is muddied up due to uh, speculation and just all sorts of manner of nonsense that comes out that's like directly opposed to what Jesus told us. What did Jesus tell us about the day and the kingdom finally arriving? Well, the disciples asked him in Acts chapter 1. After Jesus died and he rose again, these disciples, like us, are slightly confused, like the Israelites, slightly confused, not necessarily connecting all the dots. It gives me a little bit of hope for myself and all of us. And they go, great, Jesus, Acts chapter 1, are you going to now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Because they're still going like, you know, that whole kingdom, that means Rome has to be gone so there can be a Messiah and you can rule and reign. So surely now you're going to, you know, get the bad guys out. And Jesus tells them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has set, which, like, all of us, that should be our life verse. Anybody that writes a prophecy book, that should be their verse. And they always quote it, but then do the exact opposite of that. And, and, and I, get, I get partially frustrated. One, because I fell victim to this growing up in the church and some of the books and resources and speculation that was given to me that's like, Jesus is going to return by the time you're, you're 18. And I'm like, I'm not 18 anymore. And so I realize I project my own angst on this. But then pastorally, it's like, hey, this was how I, five, seven years ago, you read about the blood moons? The what? Blood moons, bro. There's going to be four blood moons. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, help me. And in case you didn't know, the blood moons, there's something big is going to happen. It came. It went, stuff happened, we're still here. Ugh. But this pastor made millions off this book and didn't give any of it back. So I get frustrated. Finger pointer. But then I feel so bad about myself and I go home and I'm like, I shouldn't have said that. And, so here's the deal. Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father has placed, but you shall receive power. Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon me. For what? For witnessing. For showing and sharing who Jesus is. For giving a demonstration to the world of what it means to be resurrected and in Christ. That's the power Jesus 
promises us that the power of sin and our lives and in the world is broken and we have this hope that he will one day return and make all things new. And yes, Jesus spoke about the day of the Lord. Matthew 24, look at it. The NT, the NT it's in my New Testament writers I'm reading my notes. NT writers pick up the theme. First Thessalonians chapter 5 tells us the day of the Lord will come like a fee, thief, a thief, <laughs> a thief in the night. Again, I don't think that verse was there so that in the 70s they could make a movie that gives a really horrible rendition of what the rapture could look like that terrifies my wife. A little bit maybe to this day. Um, (laughs) Revelation gives us a glimpse that has, again, repetition of what the minor prophets show. And Jesus, the New Testament writers in Revelation, all use similar imagery of Exodus in the prophets. What? The, na- the day is coming, it is near, and it's unexpected. It will come suddenly. There's consequence held up in the day of the Lord. There is judgment against evil that is coming. Uh, one fancy writer, there's cataclysm, meaning there's this language of things happening within creation being affected. There's going to be conquering of sin, death, and evil. And there's going to be sacrifice involved. And really, all of that culminates on the cross. It's Jesus' death, though predicted and prophesied about. It happens like this. Jesus takes judgment upon himself. What do you see in the cross? There's darkness. There's an earthquake. There's the rending of the veil in the temple. And Jesus himself becomes the sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins and the healing of the world. And so in the cross, it is the day of the Lord falling on the Savior. And in this event, he promises and gifts to any who will come to him life and freedom. And again, power and forgiveness. And he promised that one day, fully and finally, he's going to come. And we live in the overlap of the ages. We live in what theologians have dubbed the already not yet of the kingdom. So it has already come. Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom. He brought it in through his life, death, and resurrection. But it's not fully there. We look to Revelation where it gives this image of the marriage supper of the Lamb and evil being finally and fully eradicated. And so he will one day consummate it. He will one day make all things new. And in the in-between, rather than speculating about dates or events or times or wars or what this is that, we trust that Jesus has said he will make all things new. And in light of that promise, we live a different way today. And we apply that hope of Jesus's return to our very real and very pressing questions and issues that we face in life today. Like as we enter, God, do you see what's going on in our world and in my life? Yeah, finger pointer, navel gazer, depending. It's the last time I mentioned it. Do you see what's happening in our world? Because look, if if we're real about it, you look in this world, there's a lot of things to be upset about. There is evil active in our world and in our country. In every single system and structure of this world, evil has infected and affected it completely. Talk about anything you want, you can see, and I'm not like, oh, the devil's in that, but the devil's in it. 
You look at the food industry, devil's in it. Financial system, devil's in it. Political system, devil's in it. Every single system and structure of this world, the enemy has infiltrated and affected through people, through systems, through structures, and it has a dehumanizing force on our world. In our own hearts. Any of you been able to, to conquer that besetting sin fully and finally? Any of you just happy-go-lucky all the time, not dealing with any sin in your own heart or life or its effects from others around you? No. So the kingdom hasn't fully come. So we have to go, God, do you, do you see what's going on in me? Do you see what's going on in this world? And he says, I do. And he, unlike me, says he's patient about that and kind about that and merciful about that. Again and again, from the Exodus, we see that God is slow to anger. Remember when uh, the guy from Calvary with the suspenders, what was his name? Gail Irwin. There's a Calvary guy that would go do And he had suspenders, and he's, he's uh, rotund. Um, he's a slow to anger, and a bounding. And he had a shtick, and he'd go to all the Calvary chapels and do it. But the point is this. Again and again, God says and repeats of himself, he is slow to anger. Does he get angry? Yes, but he's slow. He's patient. Utah, he's long of nose, right? He's got a long nostril. He's, he's got a long fuse. He's not like me. He's not like you. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's working in the midst of sin and the struggle. You want another cataclysmic verse, go to 2 Peter chapter 3 where it talks about the, the elements dissolving with fervent heat. And again, there's all this, well, that's nuclear warfare. Stop! Huh. There's this promise of God remaking and recreating the world. And, and in 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 3, it says, The Lord is not slow concerning his promises. Some count slowness. He's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. The reason the day of the Lord fully and finally, there's these lowercase d days of the Lord, Assyria, Babylon, Rome. And then there's the capital D day of the Lord where he comes and makes all things new. The reason it hasn't come is because he's patient and he's still working salvation in and through his people. And one day, he promises to make it all new. Again, Joshua Ryan Butler says in the gospel story, heaven and earth are currently torn by sin. Our world is being ravaged by the destructive power of hell. Sin has unleashed into God's good world and God is on a mission to get it out, to reconcile heaven and earth from hell's evil influence to himself through the reconciling life of Christ. The time is coming when God's heavenly kingdom will come down and reign on earth forever, when Jesus will cast out the corrosive powers of sin, death, and hell that have tormented this world for so long. And so God sees it. Will he deal with it? He has on the cross, and he will one day fully and finally. And so the cry for God's people no longer becomes why God in all of this, but how long until you make it all new? And so we don't have to toss out the idea that God is judge or that God gets angry because that's bad. No, we see the consistency throughout the story. And that this God is not one who's just angry at a distance or, you know, the temperamental parent. 
but he's one who steps in, one who takes it upon himself. And we can take that truth and apply it to our lives today. And we have to hold this truth that God will come and judge fully and finally because when we lose it, we lose the story. And we really don't have much hope for life. But in this, we see that the light has come and is promised to shine one day fully and finally. Back a couple months ago, I did this long race, Cocodona 250. It's 250 miles. It's dumb. It's long. But I learned something in that. And that was over the course of five days, uh, it's this, this cycle that happens when night falls. you got to start using a light. You're exhausted, tired, just hallucinating the whole nine. It's, it's a trip. Get about an hour, hour and a half sleep to get up to my wonderful wife saying, get out there and keep going. I'm like, I want to quit every single day. It was like every night I tried to quit, right? And she didn't let me. Um, yeah, just shivering and cold and sweating. And I don't want to do that. She just, she's the best. But there was something that happened is you go out in the dark and you experience everything that the night has to offer with the rustles and the, ah, it's just crazy. But I'll tell you what, and just about everybody that's done these kinds of events will tell you, everything changes at the sight of dawn. The second where you no longer have to use your headlamp, but you sense morning has come and a new day is dawn, everything changes. It's the weirdest thing. There's this complete mental shift that happens when night is over. And that's the period of time that we are living in now. We are experiencing all the darkness has to offer in our own lives and in our world around us. But because Jesus has come, we can see on the horizon the new day has dawned because of the cross and resurrection. And there is this hope that, that what we're experiencing now isn't the end of the story. That there's this promise of new life and power and resurrection beyond the grave that all of those that follow after Jesus have and hold. And so we take that truth that Jesus has come, he has lived, he has died, he has risen again and promised us power for life now. And he will return and make it all new one day. We take those truths and we pack that into our heart. We pack that into our lives. We pack that into our questions and it changes everything. Because this God is still inviting. He's still promising. He's still working for you and me. This is how Zephaniah closes after all of this language of judgment and cataclysm and all of it. He says this, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your, heart, your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. 
He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame. I will gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and the renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Friends, every single Sunday we get a taste of that in gathering together. As we take the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done and we apply it to our situation now. Look, folks, he's gathered us together. A bunch, me more so than you, a bunch of scrubs, a bunch of no ones that he's created beautifully, that are broken by sin, that have been broken by other sin, that have broken others due to sin. He's gathered us together. And he said, if you trust in me, you're forgiven. If you trust in me, you're empowered. If you trust in me, there's all these promises for you in this life now and you're still experiencing life, and you're still experiencing struggles, and you're still sinning yourself and against one another. And so hear my call again and again to repent of that sin, to turn and trust in him. And what we get is just a taste of what is to come when he lifts all of our sin, when he lifts all of our shame. He already has lifted our sin. He already has lifted our shame. But when we experience it fully, and finally in his presence. And so until then, let's live with this story as the center of our lives, the center of our hearts, and let it affect our actions and how we see and interact with the world. Let's pray. And so Jesus, we thank you that we do have good news, that the light has come to us, and that in you there's freedom and power and forgiveness and healing, that you rejoice over your people. What a promise that is. And so God, I pray that today, now, as we respond, we would take those truths and apply them to our hearts. We would let that be the lens through which we see and interact with this world as we still uh, struggle and fight against the evil and sin that you have defeated, but is still waging war against your kingdom. We thank you that you are victorious, and one day you will bring your kingdom And so as our Savior taught us to pray, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.